Welcome to the 406th episode of the Jamie Delaney Plant-Based Wellness Podcast. My name is Jamie Delaney, and I'm your host. I'm a plant-based cardiologist and endurance athlete living in Southwest Florida. One more time, I'm a plant-based cardiologist and endurance athlete. Thanks for listening. Well, I'm a plant-based cardiologist for the third time who survived Ian. We've got the yard cleaned up, patched up some mango trees. Some are gone. Some of our most beautiful ones are gone. Um, little papaya leaves are starting to come back. Some um, trees or leaves on certain trees that are standing are getting new leaves. So everything in Florida is resilient. Um, I think that's a, a, a great sign. Uh, we're all resilient here in in Florida uh, and a lot of different places in the world. We all are exposed to the harshness of nature now and then. Uh, we're doing cleanup. Um, you know, what amazes me is, again, you know, the bananas are springing up out of what was just a stock. Leaves, again, starting to come back. Little seedlings growing. Tower Garden has been replanting. So nature has a way of, you know, rebounding. And it's, again, it's a good lesson for all of us to learn. We have to sometimes get knocked down, maybe, you know, ruminate a little bit in the dirt, but uh, eventually we have to pick ourselves up and and go on. So um, I'm happy to say that we're in the cleanup phase. There's a lot of destruction down here, a lot of huge trees, a lot of homes and people that really lost a lot. We are very fortunate. Uh, my heart goes out to a lot of the people who lost complete roofs, flooding um, one of our hospitals is pretty much shut down except for an emergency room uh, because of flooding. So yeah, it, it was a bit of a disaster down here. But again, we'll be back, as our friend would say. It's a little bit ironic. Before the hurricane, I started reading a book called Deep Survival, Who Lives, Who Dies, and Why by Lawrence Gonzalez. Um, it's a great read. I'm, I'm not finished with it completely. Um, I didn't read any during the hurricane while we sat in the laundry room. It was a little too dark, and uh, I was afraid how it might turn out. But, um, you know, one of the things that he talks about, people that are in disasters, um, it's the harshness of nature that we forget about. You know, some of my friends asked me would I come to where they were or get out of town, and, I, you know, I, I really did believe I assessed the situation as far as flooding in my particular area. It's not always accurate to people that were flooded um, in my area within a, say, 15-mile radius. There was a dam that broke that I didn't know existed, so obviously uh, that's something that I couldn't account for. But uh, people about six miles away that were the highest elevation uh, got some flooding. So, But I made a decision the best of my abilities um, and you know, had a plan for how I was going to ride it out. But this book talks, again, about, you know, whether it's tornadoes, hurricanes, snowstorms, uh, weather turning bad on top of a Colorado mountain at 3 o'clock and starting to lightning, uh, people getting struck. And you know, we spend so much time in a controlled environment that we, don't, we forget um, what nature is really like in a lot of instances and, and perhaps take it for granted of what nature can do. And, you know, I also think we, we forget what human resilience can do if put to the test. So, again, I'm happy to report everything is, is, is working out. Maybe I'll talk about the book a little bit um, in episodes down the road. Um, I got a question about my pull-up challenge. I was in the middle of the pull-up challenge uh, when the hurricane 
just kind of hit. And obviously my workouts turned to tree and yard work from pull-up work. So there was a little bit of a lag. But about two days after, three days after the hurricane kind of, um, you know, the wind subsided anyway, I decided to say, well, can I do a pull-up or can I do a pull-up? Drum roll, please. I can't do a pull-up. Uh, I can do about three-fourths of a pull-up. I can do a lot more of a pull-up than I could before I started the 20-day challenge. And I, I actually um, have seen progress in my strength, both from the pull-up standpoint, the hollow log um, hold, the, the, the hang hold, the inverted rows. So all of those are getting better, and I'm able to recruit more muscles. So I, I'm continuing to do it every night. Um, to some degree, I'm going up and doing my inverted rows and you know, going through the same type of challenge. So I'll keep you posted, but I, I think I'm going to get it. I, I really do. It's kind of a nice segue into uh, another topic, and that's protein. Um, where do you get your protein? Do you get enough protein on a plant-based diet? I thought that was kind of old news, but um, apparently it, it's not such old news um, to a lot of people. And, and there was an interview. I got asked a question about a recent interview of a, a Ph.D., emeritus researcher named Don Lyman, who was on another podcast talking about protein. And there were multiple questions raised, such as, as we get older, do we need more protein? Can we absorb plant proteins adequately? Are we getting enough proteins? If you're a child and you're not getting animal proteins, will you develop right? And perhaps your muscles will never develop right, so you're going to be doomed to a life of small muscles and increased fat mass. And um, let's see what else. Well, obviously, if you lose muscle mass, we're all losing muscle mass as we age. And if you have a setback, you'll never get it back, and especially if you're eating plant-based and, you know, this, this gentleman has done, you know, he, he spent his life in biomedical research. Unfortunately, uh, his studies were never funded by NIH. They were only funded by industry. They were funded by Kraft. They were funded by the egg industry. They were funded by the Cattlemen's Association. So, um, and, and he currently has ties to protein powder um, companies. So he's done research, a lot of which on rats, some, some of which are on humans, um, a limited time. I think the longest might have been 16 months. Um, never treated a patient with diabetes, cardiovascular disease, cancer. Uh, his main interest was muscle building. So again, it was focused on um, individuals that, that want to bulk up and, and um, put on muscle. And he looks at specifically, um, you know, amino acids in his research, um, a lot of which was isolated on an amino acid called leucine, um, also looked at lysine and methionine. So we can look at a couple things um, that he had to say. And, and I have to say that listening to the podcast, it's a little scary. Um, you know, because he, he looked at the recommended day, recommended dietary allowance for protein and how it came about and how we measure it. And typically, you know, an amino acid is, has nitrogen. And first of all, only plants can fix nitrogen. So if there weren't any plants, there wouldn't be any animals and there wouldn't be any humans. So we have to get our nitrogen from plants. 
The question is whether we get uh, we use a middleman or not. And his argument was that the protein associated with plants is tied to fiber, and so it's not as bioavailable. And if you eat a ruminant, i.e. a cow or a deer or a ruminant animal, then those animals are able to take that nitrogen and those proteins and convert it to a better protein that we can absorb or a more absorbable protein so we can get some of these essential amino acids. Now, again, to go over things um, for you just a little bit, um, amino acids are the building block of proteins, amino acids tie together to make peptides, tie together to make proteins. And that could be an a protein like insulin, it could be a protein like skeletal muscle, um, it could be an enzyme, uh, various things. But our body, collagen is a protein. There are nine essential amino acids that we cannot make, we have to eat. Luckily, they're found in every food. They're found in the same percentages in animal muscle as they are in human muscle. That's what makes them like ours. And that's basically what he feels is the best protein to, is to consume is the protein that most resemble our skeletal muscle. What contradicts him early on is that we recycle a lot of our amino acids. Clearly, we can't take in the amount of protein that we recycle every day. So we recycle amino acids that we already have and turn them into other things. So we're constantly breaking things down and rebuilding using energy that we take in, but also energy from broken down parts. Um, our bodies are very resilient in doing that. You know, that's probably one reason why you can go 40 days fasting with Dr. Alan Goldhammer and not die because of lack of protein and actually lose very little muscle mass um, when you're not exercising because you're breaking down fat for energy. But, and, and he admits to this that, you know, we, we do recycle a lot of our amino acids. So we need these nine essential amino acids, but again, they can come in. The question is, do they need to come in at a specific time of day? Is it better after a certain period in exercise? He doesn't feel that after you exercise, you know, there's been a lot of um, physiology or I guess, uh, training that says, you know, when you're, when you come in from a hard workout, you should have replace your carbohydrate stores and your protein stores. And you got to do it within an hour or you miss the window. He doesn't believe that that occurs. Uh, he believes that we have a, a period of time that we can, we can do that. But he does believe that overnight, because we're kind of breaking down things and we're not taking anything, we need a lot of protein first thing in the morning. So he thinks we should have a, a big protein meal uh, first thing in the morning, doesn't matter much about lunch, and then have another protein meal in the, in the evening. Well, that's not really, um, and, and again, in a controlled environment, uh, in an animal study, you might be able to show some differences in a short period of time over absorption. But for the most part, we just need to look at, you know, who's done well over what period of time. And there's more to life than muscle recovery. We know in observational studies, Scandinavian countries that have a high dairy industry, uh, dairy intake associated with increased the dairy protein casein way associated with increased osteoporosis. We know from the China study 
increased dairy um, associated with stimulation of cancer cell growth. So Dr. Campbell very eloquently took cancer cells, added casein protein, watched them increase, removed the casein protein, watched it decrease. Methionine, the very thing that, the very amino acid that he thinks is so important for muscle growth and partially because it stimulates an enzyme called mTOR, target of rapamycin, that is associated with muscle growth. It's also associated with cancer cell growth. People with cancer, prostate cancer, breast cancer have been shown to have increased mTOR levels. His reasoning is that the mTOR levels go up with high protein diets after you eat, then they go down. And so you have this muscle growth, and, but you don't have mTOR elevations all the time. But then he cycled back in the talk and he talked about, well, you don't have to worry about eating lunch because you have this elevation of mTOR after a big protein intake in the morning that lasts most of the day. So that was a little confusing to me. Um, but I know that people with Alzheimer's, people that die at a younger age have elevate levels of mTOR. So again, perhaps there's a trade-off with everything. Um, there's always a side effect. Um, I think, again, Dr. Campbell has eloquently described multiple times, there's no one isolated biochemical reaction that doesn't affect other biochemical reactions. Carnitine and choline um, is, a, is a great stimulator of muscle growth, but it also is a stimulator of trimethylamine oxide, TMAO, um, which is associated with increased um, and inflammation and increased cardiovascular disease. Dr. Lehman wrote an editorial for the egg board saying that no eggs are good for you, eggs help your eyesight, and there's lots of good things that egg do, and we need carnitine and choline. So, I mean, again, it's a difference of opinion. And again, looking at specific things that, yeah, eggs can be very good. They are an extremely good source of vitamin A, but there are other things that don't have the toxic metabolic waste as eggs do. So I think you need to look at things um, whole as opposed to, again, isolated macronutrients. Um, he feels that we should look at protein as we need so many grams of protein and that's it. Um, the other things kind of fall into accordance depending on your energy needs. But the other thing that he agreed with early on was that total energy intake was probably the most important thing when you look at overall health state. So if you take too many calories in, there's gonna be a metabolic, there's again, too many calories, too much food, increased metabolic waste, and decreased, in, or I should say increased metabolic errors. So um, if, if we store too much fat, we block the uptake of glucose, we have high insulin levels, everybody agrees insulin level, high insulin is associated with insulin-like growth factor, increased blood vessel growth, which is called angiogenesis. So we don't want people to have high insulin levels, but it's not from taking carbohydrates that people have high insulin levels, it's because of the excess of calories that led to fat accumulation blocking the uptake of glucose. So we've demonstrated, lots of people have demonstrated with plant-based nutrition um, Dr. Goldhammer, Dr. McDougall, Dr. Esselstyn, Dr. You know, our practitioners that when we, in any diet for that matter, that results in the loss of fat mass will improve metabolism, 
will improve the function of the mitochondria. The, you know, if you get rid of the fat, then you can uptake glucose. You start to restore metabolic processes in the, in the body. The question is, how do you maintain it? How do you maintain a lean body mass how do you maintain adequate muscle mass over time and what's associated with longevity? Dr. Lehman has good uh, genes. His parents lived to be into their 90s. They were farmers. They um, raised cattle, soybean, and corn. Uh, they probably worked hard. He uh, was a product of early, earlier years. You know, people, uh, again, less fast food. Today, people aren't, you know... Uh, how, how are you getting your calories? You know, I mean, I watched it through the hurricane. People went to the Wawa to get their calories, their Gatorade, their Doritos, their hot dogs, their hamburgers, the lineup for McDonald's giving away free food, Chick-fil-A, going to Bob Evans. Those are not places that you can order up. I want 40 grams of protein and low carbohydrate and low fat, um, we can't order up macronutrients. And even if you could order up macronutrients, what about the micronutrients associated with plants, fruits, and vegetables? What about the fiber associated with that protein? That um, He, again, agreed in his article for the Egg Board that the gut bacteria, having good gut microbiome was associated with either the production or not the production of TMAO. So um, there's been studies that everybody agrees on that if you give a, you know, a vegetarian or a vegan has different microbiome than a, than a meat eater. And so if you give a, a plant uh, eating person an animal product, they won't generate TMAO as opposed to a meat eater, mainly because of their difference in their gut microbiome. There have been lots of animal studies looking at what you feed determines what kind of gut microbiome you have. If you eat a high-fiber diet, you have a certain gut micro microbiome. If you eat a high-animal-protein diet, you have a certain gut microbiome. And the one associated with animals increases the production of TMAO. So, I mean, you know, therefore, it goes to an increased inflammatory state. I wanted to take a couple foods just to kind of maybe go over with them with you them and, and maybe I could drive the point home. So probably the most healthy, no, I'm going to say um, the most lean protein source that a paleo high protein diet person might eat is probably a chicken breast. breast. So if you ate 4.2 ounces, which is, you know, again, the deck of card size of a, a chicken breast without the skin... It's 198 calories. 39 of those calories come from fat, which makes 20% fat. Saturated fat was 4.3. If you want to take the 4.3 times 9, it's about 36, 38 calories from, from saturated fat. There's 102 milligrams of cholesterol. There's 37 grams of protein. So the chicken breast is 75% protein. So it's be a high-protein item in a relatively low-fat protein, so or a low-fat item. Plant-based diet, you know, we're looking at 10 to 15% fat. So certainly a chicken breast is great as far as the fat content from a paleo. Not so great if you're looking from a vegan or a plant-based standpoint. Let's look at the Incredible Egg. 72 calories, pretty low in calories, 4.8 grams of fat. 
43 of the calories in an egg come from fat. So it's 60% fat and 35% protein. So clearly it's not a high protein food. There's also 4.9% of the RDA for iron. In a previous podcast, I've looked and talked about iron and animal sources of iron that's readily absorbable, that we absorb excess iron every day if we're eating animal products and we have no way to eliminate, which is toxic. So there's a metabolic waste associated with eating even a small egg when it comes down to um, not only the protein content, but the iron content, the cholesterol content um, for starters. Bacon, uh, that seems to be a favorite uh, paleo protein. 35 grams serving, that's three slices of bacon. It's 161 calories. That's if it's probably not fried, anything that's other than the bacon. 109 uh, of the 161 calories come from fat. That's 68% fat. There's 12 grams of protein, so it's 30% protein. So it's not really a high-protein food. Again, it's a high-fat food. And with bacon, you get 581 milligrams of sodium as uh, uh, an issue. So if your daily requirement for sodium is 1,500 milligrams, 800 milligrams we hope is going to come from fruits and vegetables, and you add that 500 milligrams from your three slices of bacon, you pretty much got your salt intake for the day. And what nutrition analysis would be without some peanut butter? Because everybody likes peanut butter, and everybody thinks when they give up animal products that they're going to need peanut butter to get their protein source in. But two tablespoons of peanut butter has 188 calories, 76% of which are fat. There's also 152 milligrams of sodium, 3.8% of the RDA for iron, which is not that far off of an egg, uh, and 7 grams of protein. So clearly, um, it's, that would be 15% protein. So clearly, peanut butter is not a high-protein food either. It's a high-fat food. How about salmon? We're all supposed to eat more fish. Salmon, eight ounces, so you get a bigger serving for some reason, at least when I looked at um, up my nutrition facts. Um, so an eight-ounce serving is 468 calories. I guess you could eat half of that. Uh, 252, or it's 54% fat, and 50 grams of protein in eight ounces of salmon. That's 11% protein. So again, um, these things aren't really high-protein, they're high fat that happens to have protein. So you don't get an isolated increase in protein. So if we were going to go back and say we're going to have 40 grams of protein for breakfast and we're going to eat that in the form of food and not perhaps the supplements that he is involved with, the company that allows you to customize your shakes... Um, but if we were going to just uh, do the, the, you know, the protein, we would, you know, have to, have to get um, a pretty good caloric intake to get all the protein that we, we really were, were after. And with that protein comes fat, fat at 9 calories per gram. Now we're going to get a lot of excess calories, which is going to take us down the road of diabetes, um, excess body weight, and all the inflammation and increased cancer risk that goes with it. 
And we haven't even mentioned what we all agree that's a need is fiber uh, to get those good gut, gut microbes. Um, none of these foods have significance. There's a little bit of fiber, I guess, in peanut butter, but um, we're certainly, it's certainly gonna be hard if you're going to get that high of a protein uh, consumption per day to get 50 grams of fiber or more. So when we look at societies that's lived a long time, they typically have a very, very high fiber. So African nations that have a high fiber diet don't have any colorectal issues, uh, no appendicitis, no gallbladder disease. Uh, if we look at Asians, you know, especially in the China study uh, before um, the American influence, um, high tofu, soybean as a protein, vegetables, rice, um, so it's a pretty low protein diet, uh, longevity, much less breast cancer, prostate cancer than uh, our American, we American counterparts. So look at the blue zones, high carbohydrate, so I'm sorry, high carbohydrate diet, the form of sweet potatoes, rice, corn, um, fruits, again, in the lower side of protein. Um, so you may take a rad or you might take a group of uh, college students and look at their absorption of protein. But if you look over the lifespan of a human and what actually leads to longevity, um, you know, I would look more towards the blue zones or some of these long lasting populations. You can also look at what works, um, you know, Dr. Goldhammer, the Esselstyns, Rip Esselstyn, um, the Happy Pear Group, uh, James Wilkes, there's a, certainly a whole host, Carl Lewis, multi-gold um, medal Olympian, um, a variety of athletes that are plant-based um, that seem to not be dying of protein deficiency. Um, so um, the other thing that they talk about too, I mean, um, is that you, as you get older, uh, when you're young, you know, you're very anabolic. Uh, we're growing as, as young people, uh, developing, you know, growing in height, uh, growing in size, maturing endocrine, uh, our endocrine orders, uh, uh, organs are maturing. Um, so there's a lot of um, uh, hormones that are driving our, our ability to maintain and grow muscle mass. After we're an adult, we're not growing anymore, so the hormone insulin, um, you know, goes down even in men, certainly in women after menopause. So to maintain muscle mass, you have to have exercise. You have to have exercise. You have to have weight-bearing exercise. And again, to you know, to to be mobile, to be able to move, it's it's not all about put you in a chair and feed you, and we can make we can create this perfect human if we just give you the right amount of macronutrients. There's much, we're much more complicated. But at the same time, saying that we're much more complicated, we're also much simpler that we, you know, we have evolved to be able to withstand famines, to withstand excesses, to withstand a bad diet now and then. Um, they're surviving and they're thriving, but we know as a population, um, for the most part, survival until childbearing ages, regardless of what you eat is there. How you age depends on um, you know, what's happened. We know that uh, women in particular, if you haven't developed a lot of muscle mass and then you start to lose it, that's when people start to develop fat mass, increase fat mass as 
the years go on because muscle mass is being lost. Exercise patterns decrease. Um, so, you know, it's important to be mobile, exercise, be strong, develop good muscles, and be well-rounded, not being round, but being well-rounded as far as exercise and nutrition from, from the get-go to have a healthy human as, as we age. But the, the attention has to be paid for paid to what we're eating, but nature provides it. Um, you know, whole fruits, vegetables, eating foods in their whole, you know, um, original form as opposed to isolated protein powders and protein bars and branched-chain amino acid supplements. I don't believe that our bodies were designed, they haven't been around that long, you know, um, maybe what, you know, even if you put them back into the 80s, it's not a very long time for these isolates to be around. So what does our body have to do? We can survive on some of those things, and certainly they can be a supplement, but um, I don't think that as a human population, we're best served with taking in macronutrients in the form of powders and waters and, and supplemental vitamins. I, I don't think we've come to be quite that mechanistic. And the last thing I'll say, it's not very fun. Um, I like to look at my plate and see color. I like to look at, I like to smell different herbs and spices. I like to enjoy what I'm eating. I like to grow a lot of what I'm eating. I like to think that what I'm growing uh, is adding to the environment, not taking away from the environment. So if you look at factory farmed animals, and, and again, if we look at our nutrient content, even of, you know, um, heavily um, fertilized, pesticide, genetically modified vegetables, they're not the nutrients that an organic vegetable would give us. Uh, if that comes from soil that's in uh, replete, we're not getting the nutrients that we'd like to get, perhaps. If you take that one step further and look at factory farms with animals, you know, shoved full of arsenic and synthetic vitamins and hormones, I, I'm not sure that that protein source is really what we're after. I'm also comfortable in looking at what works, what works over time. My friend Harvey Lewis is a fabulous ultra runner at 48, running hundreds of miles in two or three days stance, you know, time period, setting a record 365 miles right in Biggs, Bactra, uh, Bactra, Biggs Backyard Ultra um, and recovering and, and running in a day. Um, if he were so protein deficient on a plant-based diet, I, I do believe he would be dead with the number of miles that, that he covers, uh, and he's thriving. Um, his friend, Mike Freeman, a 100-year-old guy, you know, colon cancer, went plant-based, he's still running at 100. I mean, it goes on and on. Um, you can say that those are isolated individuals, but I, but I don't believe that they're isolated individuals, especially when you look at, again, the blue zones and uh, other people that are thriving on a plant-based diet. Um, I, you know, I've, I've said before, I have a terrible family history. When you look at genetics, um, my, the women in, on my dad's side of the family were all overweight, glucose intolerant, built like pears. I am not. Um, I am in better shape now than I, than I was when I was probably 40. 
Um, my times continue to get faster when I'm running. I feel like I'm getting stronger. I'm going to get that pull up. Um, so I don't believe that I'm losing muscle mass on this plant-based diet that I've been doing since the uh, late 90s, early 2000s. So, um, you know, there you have it. Um, there are lots of different philosophies. You have to choose what's good for you, what you think is something you can deal with. Um, and, you know, that's, that, that gets to be your, your health journey. But I'm a plant-based cardiologist and endurance athlete, and I'm quite comfortable being plant-based and feel like it's working for me and my patients. I've seen chest pain, angina go away. I've seen claudication improve. I've taken people off their diabetic medications. I've seen people thrive after cancer. Um, I've seen people normalize their body mass index. I've seen people that are more healthy at 82, 83 than they were at 70, all because of changing to a plant-based diet. So I'm quite comfortable in the practice of plant-based medicine as far as people thriving. I am not sponsored by any industry. Um, you'll see there's no sponsors on, on this podcast. I'll talk to you about products that I like, but they don't give me any money. I don't derive my money from them. I would not have my patients do something that I wouldn't do. And if I felt that there was a better way, then I'd certainly go down that path. And, and I did listen very intently uh, to the podcast. And, you know, I do believe that he believes in his research. Um, he's biased that way. He was raised that way. He's got a lot riding on it. Um, and I hope, I hope he lives to be 102, just like his, his parents did. Um, but I'm happy being a plant-based cardiologist and endurance athlete in Southwest Florida. And I thank you very much for listening. And I'll keep you updated on my pull-ups. Next race is in November, uh, swim run. I got to get in the pool. I'm hoping the pool opens up back, uh, up back up next week so I can get my pool work done. Then we're going to, to the uh, CIM Marathon in, in California, followed by an ultra in the, in the, the spring. So this 60-year-old is not losing ma uh, muscle mass. Um, and I keep hope to get those times better and, and, and continue to enjoy life and running well into my hundreds. So thanks for listening.